This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. 96 episodes young. This is Play by Playcast. Thanks as always for the subscribe or the download, the stream, however you're listening to this podcast. If you're listening on iTunes, a rating or review goes a long way as well. Throw a couple of stars our way and a little notation about uh, what you like about the podcast, what keeps you coming back. It is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. It's a professional development podcast diving into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. Today, that is Tim Roy, the radio voice of the Golden State Warriors since 1995. And we'll get into Tim here in just a second. But before we do that, um, I just want to make a note of the unbelievable tragedy that happened this past week with the Humboldt Broncos junior hockey team. And when I first saw the news about it, um, and if you hadn't seen it yet this past week, uh, Humboldt Broncos junior hockey team on the bus traveling overnight from a game. And uh, they never reached their destination. There was a collision that wound up killing 16 uh, members aboard and injuring 13 others. And, when I first saw that story, uh, the first thing that I thought about was, you know, A, like, that's awful. Um, but I, I kind of glanced through it. I didn't, I was scrolling through, I think, Twitter when I saw the the news stories. And you read about it, and you, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't hit home. I just saw it as a very sad, unfortunate, terrible news story. Um, and then... As time went by a little bit, you start learning more, and you realize that among those killed was a man named Tyler Bieber, who was the radio voice of the Humboldt Broncos. And then it really hits home, because I think as broadcasters, I know as broadcasters, we've all been in that situation where we're on the bus traveling from one game to the next and it's nothing it's just part of what you do you don't think about it you just finish at the ballpark or the arena or the rink you pack up the stuff you throw it under the bus you get on and you kick back you watch the movie you do some prep you listen back to the game you know this past sunday it was me watching wrestlemania on the way home from Ypsilanti. And you never think about the fact that you're not going to get wherever you're going. It's just an assumption. You're going to. And a lot of times we do it overnight. I mean, I remember minor league baseball. (laughs) We would get on the bus in Wilmington, Delaware, and we'd have to drive to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And that is a nine-hour drive. So you roll in at 8 a.m., And the bus drivers that I've had 
in my career as a broadcaster have all been awesome. But you think about it. That's a tough job. Like nine hours overnight behind the wheel where you're not in charge. And that's, that's like, it's, it's one of those things, like, it's one of those times where, as people, like, we, I guess we do it when we fly on planes and fly on, and, and ride on trains and whatnot. Like, we're not driving. Like, we give up that control to an outside element, um, to the bus driver who we entrust that when we go to sleep and we wake up nine hours later, we're going to be in the right spot. Um, and just put our faith in the fact that nothing else is going to happen on the road, that we're not going to get hit. Um, and you're never paying attention, so if it was to happen, it would totally take you back. Like, who, sit, who rides on the bus and, and looks out the window and pays attention to traffic? I mean, I guess sometimes you do. But <laughs> but it, it, it's not to like see if somebody's barreling through an intersection and is going to hit you because they didn't stop. And it, it's crazy to think about the fact, as broadcasters, that could have been any of us. And I even think back, I remember a couple of years ago, Sean Godfrey was his name. He was a Ball State baseball player uh, who went on to play in the Atlanta Braves system. And he was on, gosh, I think it was the Carolina Mudcats. Was it the Mudcats? Wouldn't have been the Mudcats. Were they ever a Braves? No, they weren't. He was in, he was, gosh, I don't even remember, but he was he was on that team where the bus tipped over, overnight. Um, where, and, and, and he was fine. It's one of those parts of our job that we just don't think about. Um, and it's crazy because you never know what can happen. And it just, it just hits home. So I wanted to take a second to recall um, the memory of Tyler Bieber, who is one of our colleagues in this industry, uh, an up-and-comer in hockey, who obviously had aspirations of broadcasting beyond that level, um, but who won't get the opportunity uh, to do that going forward. So a a terrible tragedy for for everybody involved, and certainly hits home with all of us as, as broadcasters, who are on those buses all the time and you just never quite think about it that way um so on that note let's dive into today's podcast uh tim roy though again is our guest he is the voice of the golden state warriors since 1995 uh tim started uh, grew up in new england grew up in connecticut and went to college at utica college and really did a little bit of everything when he was there uh really got involved in WIBX radio and he'll detail all of this, um, but got his hands into everything. And then from there migrated down to Alabama and migrated to Phoenix and migrated to Sacramento and eventually migrated uh, to the San Francisco Bay area where he became the voice of the golden state warriors. He will take us on that journey and that path. Uh, But some of the really fun stuff that I enjoyed talking to Tim about too, uh, toward the second half of the podcast is the technical side of broadcasting. He's very particular about description. Um, and I I think for good reason and his reason behind it is very good. Uh, we talk a little bit about describing the incredible, you know, when you're the voice of the golden state warriors right now, you have to describe Steph Curry. Well, not right now, but 
generally speaking right now, uh, Steph Curry and Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson and all of these just amazing basketball players that have done amazing things as a team. How do you do that justice night in and night out on the radio? How do you make that sound different than anything else? That was an intriguing part of our conversation. Um, And we talked about the down years with the Golden State Warriors as well, because there were plenty of them for Tim Roy and how he got through all of those uh, while still making it an interesting, informative, entertaining broadcast. Uh, We did this interview last week when the Warriors were in town. They took on the Indiana Pacers um, toward the end of the regular season. Uh, So we sat down at the team hotel for about an hour, and uh, what was cool, and you'll hear this, where the Warriors came in from, I believe, a a morning shoot-around, and like Draymond Green walks right by the podcast, and uh, you can hear, I I think you can hear in the background, kids like yelling for autographs. Uh, On that note, let's dive right into it. Tim Roy, since 1995, the radio voice of the Golden State Warriors, and the guest on episode 96 of Play by Play Cast. I just thought it was um, uh, a pretty cool job. What happened to me was it, there's a, a backstory where my mom had had fallen off a ladder when I was a little, and she got this severe eye damage in her left eye. And so when I was a kid, she was constantly going either. we grew, I grew up in uh, just north of Hartford, Connecticut, a place called Windsor. And so for years, we would travel to New York or Boston, either Manhattan, eye, ear, and nose, or Boston, eye, ear, and nose, and, and she would go in for all these operations. And so my dad, to, uh, you know, to, to not make it a serious trip, he would take us to all kinds of things, museums and, and a, a ton of games. So I saw games at Fenway Park back when you could walk up day of the game and get a great seat, uh, Yankee Stadium, uh, all these places I went, and, and, and uh, so... The, so we, I had an exposure to sports at an early age. My, my, I was the last of five kids. Uh, all my brothers played sports, um, and we all played high school basketball. And and um, and so then what? I also had a stomach issue when I was a kid, and so my mom, because she was legally blind in her left eye, qualified for. And it's a long story. Stay with me. Um, qualified for what was what would be now like books on CD or books on tape. Back then it was records. So the, the Library of Congress sent her a little mini record player, and then she could order whatever book she wanted, and they, she would put the record on, and that's how she would, while she was doing her housework or whatever, she, she would listen to these books. So when I was sick with, with my stomach issue, she knew I was into sports, and she got Sitting in the Catbird Seat, written by Red Barber, and read by Red Barber, Okay. So I'm sitting here listening to this, thinking, God, that's a really cool job. And I was like seven years old or eight years old or whatever it was. And so uh, so then after that, uh, my mother, would, her story when she was alive, she would say that she would worry about me. She'd hear me talking in my room and, uh, what, what's going on there, okay? So she'd walk down to my room and then she'd realize that I had my, you know, basketball, football, baseball cards all laid out on my bed and I was basically announcing a game to myself. Oh, that's cool. So I knew from early on this is what I wanted to do. And uh, when I got to high school, I would do stuff like... Uh, I, I was the public address uh, announcer for a semi-pro baseball league in, in Hartford, the Greater Hartford Twilight League, um, which I was also the statistician and, and everything else. Official scorer, which was not a lot of fun. Uh, you know, 
ex-college stars who were bitching at me about a you know a ground ball that get, went through the guy's leg. Oh, I hit it hard. Should be a hit. You know, uh, so. I did that, and also because the, the PA system was powered by a car battery, okay, which I learned very quickly back in the day, they didn't seal the batteries the way they do now. So if you pulled that battery up, and it was heavy, you know, really heavy, and if you kind of brushed it up against your shirt, about three days later, you'd have these holes because battery acid eats through, eats through a shirt, okay? So I lost a few shirts that way, but... Um, so I did that and then um, started doing uh, some other things uh, in high school and, and uh, the, I would go to as many uh, games and, as I could. Uh, I remember going to a Celtic Cleveland Cavalier game, I believe it was at the Hartford Civic Center, and I snuck down behind Joe Tate and Johnny Most to see what they did. Uh, and how they laid out everything. Johnny was bare bones. There was a score sheet, and basically that was it. Joe had some notes and everything laid out. And uh, it uh, was a little unsettling to follow Johnny at halftime and realize he was chain-smoking under the stands at halftime. That was a little uh, that was an eye-opener for me. But um, So then as I went to college, you know, I knew what I wanted to do, and, and I was lucky to, to get an early start on it. I know you went to Utica College, and we talked about it a little bit before we started rolling tape here. Um, but what's interesting, I think, most to me about your time in Utica was that you kind of transformed your college experience into then professional experience in that market and were able to really get your feet wet in Utica. Uh, how much of a great proving ground was just being in a small market and kind of being able to really do a ton at an early age for you? I think it's great. I think it's... A, I, I, I wish... Uh, that there are more stations like that now for kids to start at because, you know, as uh, you mentioned, I, at the end of my sophomore year in college, I walked in with a reel-to-reel tape of, a, you know, the, their, the hockey team that I was doing, the, the college hockey team on the college radio, and then I... Uh, you know, as I used to say, I was exactly what they were looking for. I was, I could be had cheap. I was naive, and you know, I could actually do the play-by-play. So they hired me. And that was the 6 a.m. games. Uh, yeah, the 6 a.m. games were the ones I did out for the college radio station. I would give it 6 a.m. on Sunday morning. I was that guy, you know, because that's the only time they could get ice time. Ice time is precious, you know. And you're just adding to the checklist of why you were great for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so, and it was literally these, these Division three hockey teams were, were the coldest rink in America. We literally would do games with parkas over our headsets and then we, and our in-between period show would be to throw it back to the studio run into the to the uh, pool next door get warm come back out and do the next period and so I did that for a couple of years at the college radio station so I walked into the uh, WIBX and uh, they hired me almost on the spot uh, to back up uh, Eastern League Hockey at the time the Utica Mohawks and, and then eventually that turned into doing some Continental Basketball Association games while I was still in college. And then it, it, so I was working while going to school, while running the campus station, while writing for the school paper, while being on committees and trying to graduate on time. Uh, it, it was a great experience. It was a wonderful experience because I had so many people that were looking out for me and so many people who realized the, the passion I had for it. So, you know, I, I got a little more leeway than your average student per se. Uh, but it, it worked out and, and, you know, I graduated and I had, a, uh, you know, I had a full-time job the, basically the next day. So uh, it, was, it was a great experience. And I think all young broadcasters should go to a station like that. They don't exist anymore, unfortunately, too much. But um, because you, I started there, I did everything from 
I had to do tower readings on the stations at night. So I, I went and got an FCC, FCC broadcast endorsed engineer license so I could do that. And uh, that was hard. That was a, maybe the hardest test I ever took in my life. I was, uh, there was, we had to take this test in Syracuse. There were like 40 guys in this room. Two of us passed. Okay. And the guy was mad. The guy was giving the test was mad. What'd you do? Study? Like, he, wanted, he wanted the shutout. You know, it's like, so, uh, so I did that. I mean, I did news. I did sales. I did, um, I did sports casts. I did talk shows. I did minor league baseball there. I did minor league basketball there, small college basketball, uh, ended up doing division one basketball there when Larry Costello came in at Utica college and we were division one for about five or six years. And I did that. And then I did, uh, high school football. I did some college football, a couple of Colgate games. I did college hockey there as well. Did some college hockey. So it's a minor league baseball too, right? Oh yeah. Minor league baseball. I've done baseball at the A, double A, triple A major league level. So, uh, so I've gotten that part. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> I was there when Roger Kahn wrote his book, uh, about, uh, minor league baseball and the independent team I, I uh, one of the uh, Bill Murray's brother came up and did a few innings with me one time uh, I'm not sure what sort of condition he was in but uh, it was it was entertaining um, so yeah so it was it was a wonderful place to start and um, you know I go back once in a while to the college and, and they've done some great things with the college now it's really cool but uh, yeah so it and that that kind of background uh, helps you because it, it broadens the path you can take you know um I, i'm sitting here as the voice of the warriors because i could do a talk show that's what i got hired for early was the fact that i could do a talk show and I, that kept the play-by-play dream alive and so i kept doing that until i got to the point where i didn't have to do the talk show anymore and that was uh, that was that was nice but um but i think it, it would be great training for kids like that and unfortunately with um, radio and TV stations getting swallowed whole by these mergers. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier for small stations to say, okay, we're going to plug in ESPN than to hire you or me to do a local talk show or to do a local games or whatever. And uh, it's, it's funny, there's a station right near me. I live about 20 minutes from Napa. And Napa has this uh, independent station, and they do all their high school games. And every time I go over there, I make sure that I tell people that, you know, that I think you guys got to keep this up, keep it going, because there's not many places in California that still do that. And um, so I, I wish there were more opportunities for young broadcasters to work in that environment, because I, I found it... Uh, it was wonderful. It was it was a total blast. I didn't make a dime, but uh, but I enjoyed every single second of it, and I became a better broadcaster because of it. Before I jump closer to the here and now, uh, I do want to play off that a little bit. How many John Elway games have you broadcast in your career uh, of any sport? John Elway. Um, I, I've done about three or four, maybe five baseball games. I've never done a John Elway football game, but I've done three or four or five baseball games where he was the right fielder for the Oneonta Yankees. And I remember distinctly uh, in it, when he was the, the summer he was holding out, he didn't want to uh, play for the Colts, I think it was. Uh, he was in right field at Old Murnane Field in Utica. And once you got into foul ground down there, there was like, you know, chunks of cement sticking up and it was just it was horrible and he goes after this foul ball you know fly ball I'm thinking oh god don't don't like don't tear up a knee don't fall down don't you know don't do anything fortunately he didn't get to it and the ball bounced away and he, he was okay but I, that's what I was thinking of don't ruin your football career on this you know so 
Uh, yeah, but yeah, so I did a couple of John Elway uh, baseball, and actually uh, Buck Showalter was the manager then. So he was like, he had to be like 25 or something like that. It was like, I, I ran into him a few years ago, and we reminisced about New York Penn League days. So back, back then, it was before the, it was mandatory to upgrade all the minor league stadiums. So you had some real buttes at that point, so... I was going to say, you can tell the difference in, in minor league baseball, and I think probably in media, too, because if you have John Elway today holding out from an NFL team to play right field for the Utica Blue Sox, uh, your job as media relations director is probably far more important than your job as broadcaster. Absolutely, because uh, the you know right now the, you know ESPN would have a crew there. You know, there would be, uh, it would be crazy. But We're witnessing it. It's Tim Tebow and Binghamton. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, so I think that that would be a totally different thing today. You know, it's it's funny too because, you know, now uh, it, I think it's much harder to be a player in a lot of ways today in the, in the major league level because everything you do is documented. You can't go out on say if you have family, you can't go to a restaurant with your family and have a great time because somebody will film it and document it and put it up on social media. So back then though, there there was a lot more camaraderie I think between everybody because you were all in it together. How does uh, a young Tim Roy wind up cross-country? We've had this conversation a bunch on the podcast, I feel like, recently, where people go into to markets and different places that they don't necessarily have previous ties to and what it's like, how you get there and what it's like acclimating yourself. Um, how did you start to make that trek out uh, to the West Coast? Well, let's see. I stayed in, I, I graduated in college in 81, so I was in Utica roughly from 77 to about 85. So I was there for a while, college and then work. And I enjoyed the work. We got bought by a, 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 a group of guys who were trying to build their own radio station empire. And um, they bought some stations down south. And so they, uh, they hired me to go down to WVOK in Birmingham to take over the sports director's job there. And they hired a friend of mine, <clears throat> Bruce Howard, who was the voice of the Watertown Pirates. And he went down, and I think he went to Knoxville to do the baseball there and, do, and to work there. And so we went down, and uh, so I get to um, WVOK. I've never been in the South before, other than to do, ga- do games. So uh, You don't sound like them. No, I don't sound like them. So, so I get to WVOK, and then... And, and, Literally, the first month I'm there, the station uh, manager, uh, I think his name was Gordon, pulled me in uh, to his office, and it sits on Vulcan Mountain in Birmingham, and there's a cemetery down on the other side, and so he pulls me, and he looks down, see what's down there? Well, yeah, what's, what's down there? That's where the bear is buried. He goes, that's the first thing. He goes, I want you to know, I'm glad you're here. He goes, because we like two things. He goes, I want you to cover two things really hard for me. I said, sure, whatever. He goes, football he goes, and spring football. Those are the two sports I really want you to cover hard here. So, uh, you know, you immerse yourself in that. And, and um, you know, I got to meet some characters. Ray Perkins, who is not very social. Uh, Bill Curry, who I think is one of the most decent men I've ever met in my life. Just a great guy. Um, and, and so I did uh, that. I was the number two guy at home for the Birmingham Barons. So I got to do, and I didn't realize at the time, I kind of did, but now it means a lot more to me. I did games at old Rickwood Field, okay, which is an old wooden uh, baseball stadium for those who don't know. Once a year nowadays. Yeah, and so it was where Willie Mays played, and the you know the Birmingham Black Barons, and 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 a lot of history there. Literally, to get to the press box, you had to walk up this 
uh, ladder stairway through the roof, and they just pounded a couple of boxes on the roof. That's where your, you know, your your press box. So, uh, so I did some games there. I was the number two guy at UAB. So I did, but but basically, I ended up doing ten or. 12 games a year because when we went to TV, Gary Sanders would go over and do TV and I would do the radio. And uh, that was great. And uh, to save this for later, doing UAB basketball got me, helped get me to the NBA. I'll say that for a moment. So did that. I, I enjoyed working down there. Um, the people are very friendly. Uh, it was different. The, the, the Gulf beaches are the most underrated beaches in the world. Uh, I was so naive that when the sales guy kept coming into the middle of the newsroom and he goes, ah, I think I'm going to L.A. this week. I'm like, man, that guy got to make great coin to go out to Los Angeles every weekend. And then I figured out he meant lower Alabama. Uh, so <laughs> that's how naive I was. But it was um, it was really good. I enjoyed it and um, met some great people. Uh, Eli Gold, who is now the voice of Alabama, he was on the Motor Racing Network. Then he was doing another talk show in town in Birmingham, so I was kind of going head-to-head with him. Uh, and and just made some some great friends down there. Uh, and but my uh, my story is I think should be uh, somewhat you know if I dare say an inspiration to the other guys because both I kept moving up because of bad things were happening. Okay, so in WVOK, do you want me to go on to the next stop? Okay, okay. So WVOK after two and a half years. Uh, they start coming in the newsroom and say, well, a little mix-up this week. Nashville's got our checks. You know, we got their checks. It'll take a couple days to, to resolve. After about the second or third time that happened, you know, once, okay, whatever, they got mixed up. Second or third time, now you realize something's up, okay? And so people are getting their checks literally going, see ya, and they're going to the bank to cash them, okay? That's not good. Before the other guy, so there's enough money yeah, to cash yeah, yours. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You wanted to cash yours first. Okay, so... I started putting feelers out, and a guy I kept in touch with who had preceded me at WIBX was Lee Hamilton, one of the pioneers of uh, sports talk show radio and hardest working guy I ever met. And he he would keep coming back to Utica in the summers because he has family there. He still does. And he, w- I would, you know, sit in the newsroom, and this guy would come in. I didn't know him at first, and he'd sit there and he'd just pour through copy, reams of copy. In the old days, you would get you. There wasn't an internet, so you would get your copy off the AP wire, and it was a great old machine, made a lot of noise. And the more bells that rung on that machine meant the bigger the story. So if you heard like anything over like three bells, you knew it was something, something's up. Okay, so you would run over there and see what it is. And, it's printing like a the old old uh, type press, and and he would just go through every you know, sports copy and the whole bit. So finally, we got to know each other, and and uh, so I called him. He was well connected. He's out in Phoenix at KTAR. I said, Lee, I said, can you help me? Do you know of any jobs opening? Because are they're bouncing our checks out here. This thing's going down, and I don't want to go down with it. And he goes, Yeah, well, because funny you called. Because because I just took the charger job. And he goes, let me call you back. So he called, he made a pitch for me, and they flew me in to do a talk show with Greg Schulte on a weekend, Sunday and Saturday. We had this, basically, it was a lot of pressure. It's, you know, on-air audition time. And uh, they liked it. And so uh, I put in my notice at VOK and went out to Phoenix and uh, got there for about three years. And, And it was, again, another great opportunity because... We had Arizona State, everything. 
we had the Cardinals were moving there, so we had the card where we got to get the Cardinals. And you got involved in all that too. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, I got to do Phoenix Firebird games in the summer as the number two behind Kent Dirtavanis. So I did like 50 baseball games every summer, which was perfect. And uh, we had the Suns. So, and I was doing a talk show six to ten, Monday through Friday. You know, and it, it was always you know it was always moving around because of the games and stuff like that, but didn't do well in the dating scene at first because you you know you say yeah i can i can see you sunday after the cardinal post game show yeah that, that that would be my night out would be sunday night you know so uh that so that was that was something to get used to but it was great i was doing everything i was working in you know the pack 10 at the time i got to do some pack 10 baseball which is really cool um uh, and and uh, basically was sometimes the analyst on ASU basketball, pre-half and post for Cardinals, pre-half and post ASU football, um, you know, help, helping out with Suns broadcast from time to time and covering them all the time. And, uh, and so, you know, that was, uh, that was a great experience for me. At what point in your development um, before you got the Kings job, did you say to yourself, I'm ready, like I'm prepared to call an NBA game? I, I feel like I can do it. And what in you said, I know I can make that jump? I don't know if I ever, you know, at that point I was trying to, you know, I was enjoying Phoenix. I loved it and the work was great, but I knew I wanted to do play-by-play. So I was kind of keeping my ears open. And uh, But uh, I had no plans about the NBA. But again, um, uh, bad things can happen and so I went on vacation uh, and my contract was up I went on vacation in July my contract was up end of August the general manager who hired me had left new general manager comes in and he wanted something with bells and whistles and guys juggling on the air you know that kind of stuff he wanted a different type of sports talk show Greg and I were old school okay let's you know bring in it was a great show I thought we, we, we had tremendous guests and we, had, we always had something going on but um, uh, so this is before cell phones. Okay, this is late '80s, and or maybe about '89. Yeah, it was '89 actually. And so, um, but I did have an answering machine, which was really cool at the time because you could you could call it long distance and then program it so you could listen to your messages. So I, I go on vacation oddly of all places, Northern California, because I didn't want to go anywhere too far away. I went to San Francisco. I have a brother up in Chico. Went and saw him. Played some golf, you know, and just had a great time. And uh, right about three days left in the vacation, I call the answering machine, and Bob Christopher, the program director at KTR, is on there. He goes, "Hey, I need you to call me right away. Something's happened. I need you to call me right away." And I'm thinking, "Man, some some things happened. Somebody's you know somebody's in trouble." And then I found out it was me. Um, what happened was that the general manager had uh, gotten a tape from a guy and he's still there in the Phoenix market a guy worked in Toledo and he's now doing I think television in Phoenix and he's a good guy he did, did a nice show but he you know he was the kind of guy he was looking for hired him told the press about it so everybody in Phoenix knows that I'm out except me okay so um, so he so they basically they're gonna let my contract expire you know they weren't gonna you know rehire me so I uh I called Bob, and Bob gives me the rundown. He's looking in. He was very apologetic. I had no idea this was happening. You know, he goes, stay an extra week, extra two weeks, however long you want to stay. We'll pay the difference. And uh, so I stayed an extra week and tried to figure out what the heck am I going to do. And I went back, and the general manager, this guy Jim Tazerak, to his credit, 
you know, he got some bad press over it and kind of realized, okay, I kind of kind of didn't handle that well. So he calls me in his office. He goes, bring your resume. Okay, bring my resume. So uh, he has his a staff there, and, and he hands the resume to his staff. He says, print this up, get it on great paper, get him some stationery and stuff. And he looked at me and he says, you do all your tapes in here. He says, find a studio, work on your tape. He goes, do all your calls from here. Don't, don't call from home. Call from here. He says, and, you know, uh, you get to the point where you're at an interview, you have him call me, and I'll tell him what's going down here. That's not anything about you about something I wanted and so he was really cool and uh, at that point I got dragged back to upstate New York a buddy of mine was doing the Empire State Games what he did was we did this for years in Utica it was a lot of fun winter and and summer they have like a mini Olympics for for New York State athletes so uh, we would go and set up shop at these games and all these little stations around New York State would pay us to do these updates for them you know they're, they're local athletes interviews with their local athletes uh, so we did this and I'm doing that in Ithaca there's an Ithaca that year and uh, I'd heard there's an opening in Sacramento at KFBK and you know I wasn't sure you know Sacramento I had never been to Sacramento I didn't really know much about it I, you know I kind of just drove through it and but over a couple of beers a couple of my old radio buddies from Utica convinced me and so that night we set up shop and I did uh, two Marantz cassette machines you know going cassette to cassette via uh, line in plug and uh made a tape and one of the things I put on the tape going back to WVOK was uh, uh, part of a second half I did UAB against South Alabama so I send that off to Sacramento I go back to Phoenix and try and figure out what I'm going to do and then um, the uh, guy from Sacramento calls and says says when can you when can you get here I want to talk to you about this job so I walk in and he point. I fly to Sacramento. I walk in. He points over this box, and it's just filled with tapes. He goes, "See all those tapes?" He goes, "I guess I had to listen to all those tapes." He goes, "Then I got your tape." He goes, "You're not leaving here until you sign a contract." So uh, I signed a deal, and uh, it had ten games involving the NBA. And I did my first uh, NBA game. I think it was uh, Cleveland at Sacramento at Arco Arena, and uh, 89-90 season. And the funny thing about getting that job was. They had me. They they needed me to start right away because their guy had left and gone to LA. So I get there and um, my last check from KTUR was August 31st. My first check from KFBK was September 15th. I didn't miss a pay period. You know, I mean, it was just. I mean, how lucky is that? And, I, and that, all that happened. And I get to the NBA because I got fired. I might not have gone after the Sacramento job had I, you know, you know, because the Phoenix job was a great job. Uh, and and so uh, so I get fired and I end up in the NBA. And then I, by the time I left Sacramento, I was doing 55 games a year and uh, got the Warrior job in 95. And I've been there ever since. What do you think was the difference between your tape and that box of tapes? And I guess generally speaking, I mean, what's the difference between guys that are good and guys that make that jump? to the NBA and to that next level? Well, part of it, part of that, to be, you know, is, is chance and, and opportunity. And, you know, sometimes I tell kids that, you know, they want to get out, what's my best way to get to an NBA job? I said, well, sometimes the best way to get to an NBA job is to, to get on the pregame show of an NBA team. Uh, because I've, I'm finding as we go on in this journey that uh, 
there's less and less people who really want to do a search, you know? So what happens is, oh, well, he can do it. Let's let him do it. He's a good soldier. We'll move him up, which is great, you know? And because and, and you, you're, the, you're the guy they know. You're the guy they trust. And so that's part of it. And so, um, but I think uh, when it gets down to it, I think just being prepared and having a feel for the game. I was lucky because... I grew up in, in for as far as basketball goes, a family of coaches. You know, my brother, Pat, uh, just took his, uh, he's now coaching uh, girls. Uh, he's been doing that for about five years. He had coached boys forever, and, and his team got to the state final this year. And, um, and so I had people around me that would talk the game, and, and I think that helped me as far as basketball goes. But I, I think a lot of times um, the, um, the difference might be just how prepared and how uh, you're able to convey what's going on, to put that, men- in radio I'm talking about here, put that mental picture in, in someone's head, and then also to, uh, to be able to describe it in a variety of ways. You know, it's a high screen roll, it's a high screen roll, you know, but how do you, you know, dis- it's, it's a different high screen roll if it's a, if it's a two point game, in the in in the fourth quarter than it is in the first five minutes of the game. It's a different feel, and so to convey all that, to convey that a kind of emotion, and to convey that kind of uh, uh, I guess exactitude of, of description is, I think, what makes the difference. I think uh, a lot of a lot of uh, broadcasters kind to tend to I think when they're young try to really ramp it up and they want to make it sound like it's really exciting well maybe in the first five minutes maybe it's not that you kind of get into the rhythm of the game and and uh and and you know and and the uh, the other part about i think what separates good announcers from guys that aren't that good in and I, I think i think anybody who puts a headset on and does it i mean people don't realize how tough it is people don't re- especially when you're doing say a high school game uh, as i tell kids all the time he said you gotta you gotta make me want to stay to listen to that game because i have no horse in that race so you gotta make me want to stay and how do you do that well you know um we can't always assume that people know what we're talking about. So if you mention Johnny Smith, well, is Johnny left-handed? Is he 6'3", 6'5", 5'10"? You know, um, and so uh, I got a great, uh, great lesson for me uh, when I, my daughter was born. Uh, she's about five years old, and she's listening, and she goes, Daddy, what's a baseline? And I thought, oh. Damn, I gotta redefine that. I gotta let people know once in a while just to throw that in there because not everybody knows what the baseline is. I'm assuming people knew what the baseline was, and 90% of your listeners do. You know, I had an email uh, uh, not, about uh, a couple weeks ago, actually. Uh, what's it, what's contested three? I said, three, contested three is when somebody's up right up on you, and you're, you know, that's contested three. So, oh, that makes sense. You know, but how else did you define baseline? Well, you know, but, but you, I don't think you can define it. You can, I don't think you can name it differently, but you can define what it is. The baseline is that line that runs on the you know, sideline to sideline, goes underneath the basket, and, and, uh, and, and it's, it's that line. Um, so every now and then I remind myself to define things. Like when I say he's at the hash mark, well, the hash mark is that little black line that comes out right from the, the sideline. And, you're, you know, and um, so, so I think it's, it's important for us to, every now and then to define terms and to, to, to try to get that person who doesn't really have a you know a, a stake in this to keep them listening. I think the best broadcasters are the, are the guys that keep you hooked when it's a bad game. 
uh, and uh, there's a guy in the Bay Area, Hank Greenwald. He could he could make me listen to a 10 nothing baseball game because he would have story after story after story and and you know easier to do in, in baseball than others because you have the time to tell the story but uh i still think that that you can do it in basketball and football and hockey you can you can find a way to weave stuff in there uh in a blowout game and and, and uh, unfortunately for me but fortunately for me um from 1989 to 2006 in the nba i did not have a team that got to 500 so i'm well schooled in that uh, that that game i want to come back and ask you about that in a second but while you're on description um with what you see every night you see some remarkable things over the last couple of years how do you describe steph curry differently on a night in night out basis what clay thompson does differently and then also do it justice with how miraculous some of the things they do are what is the challenge to you that's unique to having a team that has been so good yeah that they 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 come up with new stuff every day they come up with stuff um that uh, boggles your mind, and you just have to, you know, I with, with, with Steph, if I just focus on him and describe exactly what he's doing, then you get that sense. You get that sense he's doing something miraculous because he's dribbling, he's got this move, and he's making this stuff, and and, and um, the, the thing I've been trying to do the last year or so is not take any of this for granted. You know, we're sitting in a hotel lobby here, and there's a couple of kids that are waiting for autographs. Usually, outside, they'll be, you can hear them yell in the background. There's crowds, you know, of people that are just waiting for the Warriors to arrive. It's like covering a rock band. Um, and so uh, I, the description part of it with, with a guy like Steph or a guy like Kevin Durant or, or, or Clay is, is, is just to not take it for granted, to make it so when he, they make that unbelievable shot that you've seen 25 times, that you make sure people know it's unbelievable because it's, it's you know, what I'm looking at right now is once in a lifetime. What are the words that you like other than unbelievable? Because uh, I feel everybody always gets nailed for using that one. How else yeah. do you describe unbelievable? Uh, sensational, incredible. Um, you know, what the heck is he just doing? Um, or do you let your voice kind of stand on its own sometimes? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes. Just by just using the tone of voice, you can you can infer, you can um, you can definitely describe what's what's going on. Um, and I think you know the. Uh, one phrase I got saddled with early in my career, um, we had Joe Smith, and he had a backdoor lob. He just he just got up over the top of everybody, and uh, and I said, oh, man, he's, he's like an elevation sensation. So I got stuck with that one. But uh, people seem to like it, and if I don't use it for a while, people then will like they'll they'll ping me on Twitter and stuff like that because hey, we haven't heard elevation sensation in a while, so it's like oh. It's so it's it's the good ones happen accidentally. I feel like for a catchphrase. Absolutely, it happened accidentally. Like one one night, um, Steph did something, and all I said was Curry, just like that. And so now, uh, people want me to do that one as well. And and to me, that was just, you know, he makes this move, and you know, he put a guy in the spin cycle, and then backed up and hit a three, and it was just ridiculous. And that's and. And so to me, it was like he just he did it again, and that's why I said Curry, just like that, just to give that feeling that there he is again. You know, he's doing it again. And so, um, so I think yeah, I think you got. I don't think you can plan for it. I think you, you can you can have ideas you want to use in a broadcast, but I don't think you can plan for it. Do you do you read a lot? Do you like? I mean, do you like read the dictionary? Like, what do you, do you study words? How do you? What's your process of? I'm gonna have 
this much, these many, this many paintbrushes in my arsenal, so that I can paint pictures the best I can, and that you don't revert to something that is blasé for something that's phenomenal. Well, I was lucky uh, at high school, St. Thomas Seminary in Bloomfield, Connecticut, uh, which is no longer a high school, uh, but I had to take three years of Latin. So I can look at a word sometimes and have a good idea of where the definition might be, you know, that it, it's in this sort of an area because I know the roots, um, you know, uh, the, uh, and then I, I had to take literature in high school. And then, uh, true story, Utica College, I'm walking down the hallway one day, probably my sophomore year, and this guy, Frank Bergman, who was my English teacher, a uh, German guy grabs me in the hallway, literally physically grabs me and says, come into my office. Said, what did I do, Frank? I said, Frank, I'm not even taking you this semester. What's up? He goes, no, no, I'm starting a lit minor and you're going to be one of my first students because I had taken an English lit class with him. And he, he says, no, I, you can do the work. And, I, and so then the next year, I go to one of his night classes and his speech was, if you miss one class okay that's fine if you were sick or something if you miss two don't bother coming back so i'm looking at my hockey schedule which i've just gotten now frank i'm gonna miss like four classes just do the work and so i i I read a lot of literature and i think that helps because you're exposed to different words and different phrases and different ways of doing things and i think being well read is even more important today than maybe it was when i was growing up because i think today the the uh with the you know we're all slaves to the phone you know we look at the phone but if you actually read something and you read a book you read something that's hard read something that maybe you're not even interested in uh it forces your brain to work hard it forces your brain to process different ideas and so i think you know, uh, uh, I was fortunate to grow up in a family that reading wasn't an option. It was required. And uh, so uh, I've always, yeah, I've got so many books at home that I, I, I don't have enough shelving for them. So, uh, which is a, a cause of some inner strife at the house once in a while. Uh, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, I think being well-read allows you different paths to uh, to work on description and to work on you know the fundamentals of the craft for those of you at home there was an interesting paradox because Tim just held up his phone and then put it down on top of a newspaper uh, so <laughs> there's the reading and the the dinosaur of the thing you actually hold yeah. uh, I know I've taken a lot of your time and I want to let you get uh, going to your prep but I did want to ask you before I let you go um, about those tough years with the Warriors and combining that with your talk show experience um, and how having done a talk show and having had to fill time uh, informs your ability to maybe broadcast games that are not necessarily close and how you marry being able to talk about other things with still, basketball's a fast game, you've still got to do the play-by-play even though it's not always good, how you kind of create that blend together. Yeah, it's it's kind of a tightrope. It's harder actually to do with this team because they play so fast. So, but uh, it, the thing I always try to do is prepare for the blowout. Think this game's going to get out of control early, and I've got to be ready. So, uh, so I've got a, uh, a hard drive I carry with me that has um, uh, I archive sound. So I have sound uh, like in, in the Oklahoma City. In case that game got bad, I had 
I had a, uh, a soundbite of Eddie Gottlieb, who was the first Warriors coach, and Steve was getting past him with the win the other night. So in case we got to that, we didn't get to it because the game was so good. But And then I also had Bob Blackburn's call of the Sonics championship in 79 because that's the only NBA title that that franchise has ever won. Where do you pull that all from? Oh, I, I, I can't reveal the places I steal sound from. <laughs> uh, but uh, but YouTube uh, would be a great place to go and get some sound. Um uh, but over the years, I've just I've always had. In fact, one of the, one of the cool things I've done the last couple of years is uh, I finally have decided that I have to get rid of all these tapes I've amassed over the years. So I've got a Marantz cassette deck, and so in the summertime, I'll load a cassette, hit play, it goes into my Adobe Audition in the computer, and then I go back and listen to it at, when I have time and figure out do I want to save this, do I want to get rid of this, and and. And then I also did it with reel-to-reel tapes last summer because those are starting to, to degrade. And I found some real cool stuff that I did early in my career, some stuff from Syracuse, some Syracuse stuff and, and um, uh, talking to Dick McPherson and, and uh, Jim Beheim and, and, uh, and, and found some really cool stuff there that, that I'd forgotten about. Uh, so I, I tend to ar- and I tend to archive uh, interviews that I do, especially with guys with history. I love the history of the game, and um, uh, one of the cool things we did during the lockout a few years ago, we couldn't talk to any of the current players. It was against the CBA because I worked for the team. So, but I could talk to former players. So for the website, I did a whole bunch of catching up with interviews with guys like Sleepy Floyd and and um, Chris Mullen and Tim Hardaway and and. Uh, uh, going back even further, Jeff Mullins and Rick Barry and people like that. Um, you know, I, I found uh, some interviews I did when I first got the Warriors of guys who had played for the Philadelphia Warriors, uh, Paul Arison and people like that, which was really a lot of fun. And um, so, yeah, I tend to archive. So I save sound for things like that. But also you got to think about storylines and think about, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, Victor Oladipo and our guard Quinn Cook have a connection. So if the game gets bad tonight in Indiana, I've got a little story I can tell about them. That I've had in my back pocket waiting for the time to to use that. So yeah, there's a lot of um, you know a lot of little things you can you can do. But I think if you you prepare like it's going to be a blowout, and then it, if you know the say a difference between say baseball and basketball is that in baseball especially doing TV when I, I was fortunate enough to do TV with the A's for about three years. Uh, I have time for every story I can think of, okay, because baseball is at that slow pace. And basketball, I come out of every broadcast thinking, man, I wish I could have gotten that story in. But you still have time. So you have to reconcile the fact that, okay, that's just the way it is in basketball. Um, so so it, it's – but I think that preparation, I think, separates guys. Um, and we've all heard an announcer who – you know, it's fourth quarter and the game's out of hand, and you can just tell they don't have a path. They don't have a, an outlet to go. So, uh, like for young broadcasters, I tell them when you're doing high school stuff, call the other team. You know, call the other team. They'll, they'll be more than happy to talk to you most times. Every now and then you get the, the grumpy guy who doesn't want to talk to anybody. But but call, you know, say if you're, you're um, playing in a, a high school rival weather, call, call that coach. Call his offense coordinator. Find out, you know, what, what guys does he like? What guys are getting recruited? What guys are, you know, what's, what's, what's your best story from, you know, last couple of years with your team? And, and, uh, 
and get that little extra nugget. Um, when I was doing Stanford football, you know, I always made sure I talked to the coordinators. I always made sure I called the other team's SID to see if I could talk to the, one of their coaches or one of their players that week so that I get a handle of where they are. So, uh, so you can talk about them and have a, a base of knowledge that doesn't just come from game notes. Uh, how do you keep your right hand from dragging with that ring on oh, it? Yeah, I, I took that off first. Um, <laughs> th- that's the second of two. I brought it because I had uh, an old uh, college friend who wanted to see one, so I brought it on this trip. I usually don't wear them. Uh, I only wear them for uh, for um, uh, speaking engagements or if somebody wants to see one at a party. But, yeah, this is our second one, and it's 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 gorgeous. I'm lucky that uh, I've got one. I'm lucky i got two because i got two kids. So now, you know, I can... Yeah, can die happy because I know they can. They don't have to fight over it. So they one will get one, one will get the other one. So it's it's pretty amazing uh, to think about that because you know as I mentioned before, we've had so many uh, down years for for years. You know we would walk into a hotel and there'd be nobody looking for us. You know for years, I, if I saw someone in the stands pregame with Warrior gear, I might go over and say hi to find out where they're from. And, hey, so-and-so's here from Burlingame. You know, you like us? <laughs> yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, you're really. So, um, you know, I mean, we'd come in and the newspaper, would the headline would be, Woeful Warriors to Meet Pacers, that kind of thing. You know, so we had a year, uh, 2000, 2000, 2001, I think, uh, we beat the Clippers in February. We were 15 and 32, I believe. We ended the year 17 and 65. We went two and no, we were 15 and 33. We had two and 32 to end the year. And uh, so, you know, if you look at that year, it's L L L L L L L L W L L. Then it's just it was, you know, it was it was as close to a basketball death march as you could get. But it was just it 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 forced you to dig deep and work harder forced you to uh, you know I'd have a meeting with my interns and say okay the team's bad we can't be bad we have to be better than that we have to be really good and so uh, it was it, it was hard at times you know because you kept wondering when is our time going to come and the other thing was too we all knew all there's only a handful of us who survived all those years and are still with the team uh, but we all knew that if it ever turned around, it was a gold mine because we had these fans. And the, my first five years, I would get these emails and letters, and they were just really mad about the team. And I'm thinking, guys, it's something I did. And then I realized it's not that. It's just that they're passionate. They want the team to be good. And so the worst thing is if your fans don't care. But our fans have always cared. And now that we're in this run, which I think is the run of the franchise, uh, you know, it's a worldwide thing. We have... If, Places like Memphis, places that are hard to get to from the Bay Area, and we get you know a couple thousand fans in there in their building to watch us warm up. For God's sakes, it's it's an incredible phenomenon. Well, Tim, we're uh, I think 96 episodes in with this one, so I never take for granted that I somehow convince people to sit down and talk with me. So I uh, appreciate the time and uh, thank you again for uh, for doing this. It was a blast to kind of pick your brain and and hear your path. I I appreciate it. It was fun to uh, go down that path. Uh, and for hopefully for me, that path continues for another few years. It's been, uh, you know, the, the, the great thing about this is if you get, you know, the, the, it never feels like work. You know, so last night, tonight, I'm, I'm prepping, going through stuff. I know, dinosaur, reading the newspaper. But uh, uh, it, it's always fun, and it never is, is boring to me. And I get up every day wanting to work, and I'm blessed for that. You know, and, and you know, even for guys who... 
maybe don't get to the major league level, but they're working in the markets they grew up in or whatever it might be. You know, I remind them all the time, hey, you're doing what you love to do. I mean, most people have a job. We don't have a job. We have a vocation. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing to do if you can do it. The only thing I will say about the job that I don't like is that uh, when it's all over and done with, I won't miss getting on airplanes. And I won't miss being in three time zones in three different days. That part I won't miss. So uh, I got that off my chest. That is Tim Roy joining us here on Play by Playcast, voice of the Golden State Warriors, who have made it to the NBA playoffs despite not having a healthy Steph Curry. They are the two seed. They get the Spurs in the first round. Uh, winner gets the Pelicans and Blazers, Victor, um, and then well, go on from there. Uh, the NBA playoffs, though, officially underway. So if you want to catch Tim Roy's work, you still can do that uh, across the Golden State Warriors. Radio Network. If you'd like to catch Tim on Twitter, you can find him there as well. He is at Warriors VOX, at Warriors VOX to catch Tim Roy on Twitter. And honestly, if you enjoyed this podcast, give him a shout on Twitter too. Just let him know you caught the pod, you enjoyed it, uh, what you enjoyed from it. I think one of the coolest things for me is when you see that interaction. Um, between people that listen to the podcast and I, you know, I, I got another email this week uh, from someone who like has taken things from this and really has enjoyed it. Um, share that with the people who are on the pod. Cause I think it's cool for, for them um, that listen, they're not just taking an hour out of their time to sit and talk with me. They're taking an hour out of their time to sit and talk with all of us. And I think it resonates and, and it's, it's gotta be cool. And Hey, like you get that feedback. Hey, you said this and it, it rung true with me. Uh, so if you get a chance, hit them up at warriors V O X on Twitter. Uh, as always, you can find all previous episodes archived through our back catalog from episode 95 all the way down to episode number one. Um, so do do that if you are new to the podcast as well. And then we will talk to you next week when Red Wings voice Ken Daniels will join us. If you follow the voice behind the voice, uh, Ken was on that podcast this week as well. A little bit of a different conversation that we have coming up uh, next week on this podcast. Had a chance to sit down with Ken uh, while I was on the road in Ypsilanti with uh, Ball State Baseball this past week. Uh, So uh, I think a a conversation you will enjoy coming up next week. And then there's a couple other intriguing guests in the hopper uh, as we barrel toward our 100th episode. So uh, keep, uh, keep yourself locked in. At PXPCast on Twitter. Thanks as always for the subscribe and the download. We'll talk to you next week. We are out. Hit it, Marshmallow. That will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.